when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to In The Field, a weekly podcast from IB Times UK. Each week, we speak to journalists and activists, analysts and aid workers who are at the heart of the stories that matter. This week, we're talking to feminist author and journalist Julie Bindle, who has spent the last two years researching a book on the sex trade. During her research, she's spoken to sex workers and activists in over 30 countries and concluded that legalising the sex trade, as in Holland, does nothing to protect women, that, if anything, what is needed are harsher penalties for men who pay for sex. So, tell us a little bit about the book. It's called The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth, which is quite a... A provocative title, perhaps? It is. And actually, the reason why I decided to use the term pimping within the title is because, obviously, as you'll know, within popular culture, over the last 15, 20 years, pimping has been used to describe just kind of making something more marketable, um, jazzing it up a bit. You know, pimp, pimp your girlfriend, pimp your car, pimp your coffee. And actually yeah. what, pimping, what pimping actually means is selling women, uh, exploiting women, and living off the earnings of prostituted women. Now, we need to get back to use that term because in recent years, the kind of sanitization of the sex trade has meant that we no longer call pimping. Pimping under legalized regimes in Germany and Holland and some states in Australia and New Zealand, for example, they call pimps managers. And so it it, it kind of redefines what is um, a trade built on the exploitation of women and girls in the main. This is obviously an issue you've written about in the past. What what made you want to write a book about it? Well, for the past sort of 30 odd years, I've been involved in in feminist uh, anti-male violence campaigns, rape, domestic homicide, child sexual abuse, sexual harassment and the like. And, of course, prostitution and the, the sex trade is within the sphere of, of male violence, at least as far as I'm concerned. Mm. 20 years ago, I was involved in organising a conference on violence against women. It was a week-long conference in Brighton, uh, UK. And it was really the time when we were on the cusp of globalising political movements because of cheaper, more accessible travel to other countries, because of the internet, which was very new still, Um, in terms of of popular use. And so the fact that I met during that week-long conference 
women who'd been campaigning against the sex trade from developing countries, from the global south. They came from Africa, from India, from South America, etc. meant that I could see how this industry peddles the same kind of myths and perpetuates the same lies about what it is and who's involved in it everywhere in the world. So in other words, um, prostitution, uh, you know, through the process of trafficking uh, and other means, is globalised. But so too are the ideas about it, is the mythology around it, and the excuses for it. So I heard from the women from these other countries that told me that their governments also say things like, it's the oldest profession, what would men do if they couldn't access sex when they need it? They'd have to go out and rape, quote, real woman, unquote. All the things that I'd heard apologists of the sex trade say back in Europe. Um, and so that gave me an impetus. And the other important thing that happened at that conference for me was that I met a woman who since died called Norma Hoteling. And she was a San Franciscan-based activist. She was running an exiting service for women who wished to leave the sex trade, as in California. But she pioneered something really radical, which was a school for sex buyers, the John School, as she called it. Right. And Norma herself had been prostituted and street homeless and had ended up in prison, got clean from heroin, came out and decided she wanted to put something back in to, um, to the community and to the women who were still in, in the sex trade. And she thought a really good way of actually funding this and also which would serve its own purpose would be to get those men who are apprehended by police for curb crawling, for looking for women in street zones, and put them on a course, you know, a kind of six to 12 week course once a week and actually look at how they had learned, what they had learned about the sex trade. In other words, that it's perfectly harmless, the women are happy doing it, um, the women are making a free choice, all of that kind of nonsense. And mm. so these men were given the information in order to, I suppose, challenge them about their misconceptions. And many of the men, Norma found, were ambivalent about what they were doing. They'd, they'd, they'd been raised with this kind of normalised view of paying for sex. And many of them realised that, yeah, this isn't particularly something that, uh, that rocks their boat. And, uh, and many of them would have would have reformed their behaviour. But I mean, it's not just men who pay for sex that make those kind of arguments about prostitution. I mean, people say that in Holland, for instance, where it is regulated, there's more opportunity to make sure women aren't mistreated, that they're not uh, pimped out by kind of gangs that, you know, that basically there'll always be prostitution and it's better to have it, you know, regulated and you need know, to ensure safety standards and so on rather than have it on, on you know, under underground. Of course, and those arguments are prevalent across all kinds of you know, communities, belief systems, political perspectives. And many women will argue and fight tooth and nail with the likes of me and other feminist abolitionists to say, it's my choice, I want to do this, how dare you stop me earning a living the way that I wish. And then, of course, governments will peddle what I know our lies and you know the book will outline exactly how mm. um, I, I call them lies with no fear of, of redress um, because they they have a vested interest to governments in legalized regimes 
they pull in taxation, or so they thought they would when they passed the laws. In fact, um, only 5% of the 25,000 prostituted people across the Netherlands are registered for tax. But they also, as far as Amsterdam's concerned in particular, but also Rotterdam and Den Haag, pull in a load of sex tourism. Right. And that's money. And it gets Holland on the map as a serious player in in taking a radical approach to what they call is the world's oldest profession, and which I would call the world's oldest oppression. And certainly, you know, uh, not a profession and not something that we should leave women who are poor and desperate uh, to do as their only option. Do you come to any, um, I mean, presumably you do, but do you come to any conclusions in the book as to how, uh, uh, as to a better way of tackling the issue of, of prostitution? Yes, obviously, there's no point writing a book that's full of doom and gloom and pointing out something terrible without saying how this can be reversed and how this can be put right. And the politics of inevitability around prostitution are very stark. You'll have heard, everybody listening to this will have heard, well, prostitution will always be here. Uh, And in fact, you, you put that question to me earlier. Yeah. But we don't say that about child sexual abuse. And we don't say that about domestic violence. We don't say to men who we consider unable to stop beating their partners, well, just put a pair of boxing gloves on next time you feel like hitting her around the head. Mm. We might not kill her and she might not have brain damage. We don't harm, minimise when it comes to things like child sexual abuse. Now, if, like me, you see prostitution and the sex trade as located within human rights abuses of women, then we can't possibly just advocate keeping it going and giving the women condoms and needles and a legal place from which to be pimped. Mm. Because actually, to go back to the Amsterdam scenario, about four major pimps own all the brothel windows in Amsterdam. Mm. It hasn't at all legalised the sex trade. It has just meant that the expansion of the illegal trade pimps don't want to pay tax, women don't want to register, has expanded massively. So anyway, to get back to your question about the solution, after a a number of years of campaigning, uh, female members of parliament and feminist campaigners and other human rights advocates and some radical social workers in Sweden, and this was on the back of a horrific murder of a street prostituted woman called Katrine de Costa in the 80s, they decided that you need to tackle the sex trade root and branch. You can't just hand out, you know, safety kits for the women and see them on their way to be raped and beaten and have their kids lost and get more addicted to heroin. So they thought, okay, what's the problem in prostitution? The problem, of course, is the demand. Hmm. The demand is 99% male. You know, people can say all they like that there are female sex buyers and they can the stats, but this is an industry built on men's demand for prostituted women and girls. So, okay, they thought uh, public education about why it's not harm—it's not harmless to pay for sex. We should get this across to all of Swedish society, and then what we should do is criminalise, criminalise any men, any person, any human being who attempts to or actually does pay for sex, but decriminalise the person selling sex. 
So take the punishment away from the person who has the least choice and put it firmly on the person who has the most choice. Because, of course, nothing bad's going to happen to a man who can't access a woman in prostitution. You know, he's, he's not going to simultaneously implode. Mm. He's going to be fine. Sex isn't a human right. It's not food or water or air. And so in 1999, the law was introduced to criminalise demand. And the majority of the country at that time, including the police officers and the prosecutors and the general public, were against this law. Because they thought, well, why should you criminalise one side of the transaction and not the other? But through public education and training for the police, they came to realise that this isn't a kind of even-handed issue. This isn't the same side of a coin. So um, the police came to support it because they could, through their investigations into sex buyers over the internet, track down trafficking rings as well. Traffickers knew that Sweden wasn't a friendly place to go and sell women. Brothel owners were more reluctant to set up shop because they realised that this wasn't going to be an easy ride for them. Women were given support to exit the sex trade. Not enough support, but some. And of course, because they were decriminalised, if they did choose to still carry on or had no choice to carry on selling sex, and a punter was abusive, refused to wear a condom, didn't pay her, she could just pick up the phone and get him arrested on the strength of that alone. And she wouldn't be arrested. So anyway, this this, uh, law has been rolled out into various countries since Northern Ireland, the UK, France, uh, and and also Norway and and South Korea, weirdly. Um, And and it, it has had a normative effect. So it means that people see prostitution differently in the countries where they have the what we call the Nordic model. Children aren't growing up thinking that women are to be bought and sold as they do in Germany and in the Netherlands. And so it's it's a bit like an attitude change that you get when you say people shouldn't smoke in public places. Let's make it a criminal offence, but let's explain why. Mm. Or why you should use a seatbelt and not drink drive, or why you shouldn't smack your children. Mm. So it's, it's a law with a normative effect rather than a heavily punitive. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting comparison because, of course, 10, 15 years ago, the idea of banning smoking in bars would have been um, was was huge. And yet now it's completely accepted that you can't smoke indoors or smoke even within, you know, close to buildings sometimes. That's right. And, you know, we, we would all look horrified, whether we're smokers or not, whether we're ex-smokers or not. We'd all look in horror at a person that lit up a cigarette indoors, though, wouldn't we, in a public place, yeah. on, a, on a railway station. And, and I think that's right, because it's not about stigmatising the person. It shouldn't be about making them feel bad. It's saying, OK, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. You may not know that sitting at a bar and puffing 10 fags directly in the face of, of the bar staff you know, might give them lung cancer. But we're now giving you the information, and you can work it out for yourself. But either way, we're using the criminal law uh, for protection of the majority. There's always a minority whether they're libertarian or whether they're just irresponsible, who will say you shouldn't use the criminal law for what they consider to be, you know, leisure activities. Mm. But we know enough now about the harm of the sex industry, how it harms the women, how it harms communities, how it harms the children involved in this. Um, and we also know about the harm it does for all women, because, of course, if men can buy and sell or rent women's orifices for their own pleasure... What does it mean about the way they look at women? And and to get this through to people that what a prostitution exchange actually is, is that one person wants sex, the buyer, the other person doesn't want sex, and we know this because there's an exchange of money. Mm. So, so that's, that's not acceptable in any society that values the equality of women. You've, I think it's fascinating that you've been, you've been working on this for some time and you've been to quite a lot of different countries. And I wonder, could you tell us perhaps about, you know, a time that you particularly influenced your writing during the book, you know, a place you went to or a certain person you met? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I've actually ended up over the two years I've been doing the research, trying to write in between, of course, to 35 different countries, cities, states, uh, and towns um, pretty much everywhere in the world. And there, there are various scenarios that stand out. I've done over 200 interviews with survivors of the sex trade, with pimps, with sex buyers, with politicians, with police, uh, pretty much everyone involved. But one thing that really struck me was when I went to Cambodia and I was in Phnom Penh in the capital. And... I'd asked if I could meet some women who were involved in the sex trade because there's no survivor movement there. By survivor movement, I mean the women who've got out of prostitution and who begin to then campaign 
for abolition to end the sex trade. Uh, Cambodia, the women have got nothing. The poverty there is dire, as I'm sure you know. And I wanted to talk to the women about how they were treated by the police because as someone who has campaigned for a long time to criminalise the demand side of the of the, the, the transaction, I've also campaigned for the decriminalisation of the women, of the men, of anyone selling sex because, of course, particularly in countries with a corrupt police service, the women are ill-treated, mistreated, and it's it's a shocking state of affairs. I mean, even in, in the United States, uh, you know, the women are criminalised and, and it's just totally unacceptable to be criminalised for your own abuse. So in Cambodia, uh, I met a group of six women who were prostituting on disused railway lines, uh, who were as poor as you could imagine. Two of the women uh, were HIV positive by sex buyers. Two of the women had children with sex buyers, well, one with a pimp. One woman was pregnant by a pimp. But they came along and they really wanted to talk. And they told me that they were involved through a translator, this is, a translator who was a Cambodian woman, but she was uh, funded by a big international organisation to work with these women. And she said that she was helping the women become sex workers' rights activists. So the translator would tell me their stories and each and every one of them wanted to talk about the abuse and the police corruption. But at the end of the interview with all of these women, during which time the head of the NGO kept butting in and speaking for them, I realised that these women weren't at all so-called sex workers' rights activists. They were being used as political pawns by well-funded NGOs to sign them up basically for about you know, a dollar a year so that they would have certain rights, like they'd be met at the police station after they'd been arrested and their children would be looked after if they were in the police station overnight and if one of them died, they would pay for the funeral. But they weren't at all sex workers' rights activists like we would understand it and that I would actually argue against. They didn't want legalisation of the sex trade. They weren't saying they were happy hookers or that they enjoyed their work and feminists should back off and let them get on with it. They were actually just being used. And what happens is that in these countries such as India and Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam and all over that region and Africa, the funding that the organisations get is AIDS and HIV prevention money. And the people that run these organisations are ideologically in tune with the pro-prostitution lobby that wants blanket decriminalisation of pimping and brothel owning and everything. Mm. And these women have been paraded around as though this is what they want. The red umbrella, which is an international sign of the pro-prostitution lobby, sometimes is literally handed to each of these women and they're dragged along on a protest outside of a police station where pimps have been arrested. So I realised just how the pro-prostitution lobby in these countries operate to dupe the women who just need our help and support to get them out of the sex trade. Uh, they, they, they rewrite the entire political landscape. Mm. And this influences policymakers. It influences the big organisations that give billions of dollars in 
AIDS prevention money, and it influences the likes of Amnesty International, who recently passed a policy saying they believe in blanket decriminalisation of the sex trade, because, of course, they can quote all of these so-called sex workers in developing countries who want the same as these white libertarian men who just see it in their own interests. Interestingly, I mean, you've you've been around some places like Cambodia and so on, um, and you're obviously writing a controversial book. Um, probably people know of, of you because of your previous work and so on. Have you had any kind of hostility uh, or, or any backlash from people when you've been out in the field kind of reporting on this stuff? Yes, many of these sex workers' rights activists, you know, obviously would choose not to be interviewed by me, which is absolutely fine and understandable, although I would always give an interview uh, to someone from the other side of the debate, but, you know, each to their own. But I've had access to some organisations, such as in Nairobi, for example, with a, a very uh, pro-prostitution, pro-legalisation outfit there that agreed to see me when I was in town and just hadn't Googled me. Just just hadn't... You know, she, she really had no idea what my politics were. And, of course, I told her what my approach was as soon as we began the interview. And she had a a choice to terminate the interview and luckily she didn't she was a very warm open person but totally on the other side of the debate mm. but then i have had some um refusals i've uh seen on social media sometimes when i've been going into different countries watch it julie bindles in the country she'll be wanting to distort uh, the reality about the sex workers rights campaign i've been walking around the window brothel area in Amsterdam, talking to sex buyers, uh, in, you know, or, or sex tourists. And I've been confronted by, uh, by pro-prostitution lobbyists who recognise me, who warned the men uh, against speaking to me. So it's difficult, but I think that I always strive to be respectful. And I always argue against the ideas and the political positions and not the individual person because, you know, there's such a lot of horrible personal vitriol thrown about mm. uh, towards towards me and towards the survivors who've been in the sex trade and who, you know, terrible things are said about them by the other side of the debate. And I really don't want to do that. I want to have a respectful discussion. And luckily, I have had good and positive exchanges with pro-prostitution activists in France and in Sweden and, as I say, in Nairobi also. So there's, there's some good has come out of it. Mm. Well, we're all fascinated to uh, to read the book. When is it out? It will be out uh, at the end of June. Okay, cool. Well, um, I would encourage our listeners to watch out for that. And thanks very much, Julie. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. My pleasure. So that's it from In The Field this week. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, and if you're listening on Acast, we've embedded rich links to some of Julie's articles for IB Times UK. Thanks, and take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.